Welcome to Sustainability in the Air, the world's first podcast dedicated to sustainable aviation. This show is brought to you by Simplifying, which has been helping build trust in travel for over a decade. Through in-depth conversation with aviation leaders, sustainability in the air breaks through the current clutter and provides a clear roadmap for the future. It's about time we embarked on creating a net-zero future for the industry, together. This season of the podcast is brought to you by Carbon Click, leaders in managing carbon offsetting programs for top global airlines. Without further ado, here is your host, Shashank Nigam, CEO of Simplifying. Welcome to another episode of Sustainability in the Air. Today with me is Dan Rutherford, who is uh, the program director at ICCT, which is International Council on Clean Transportation. Now, just to clarify, Dan, you're not an activist per se. You do fly for work, right? Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, so ICCT is a research-based environmental nonprofit. We work directly with environmental regulators worldwide to reduce transportation emissions. But uh, I mean, the, the thing we're best known for is having helped uh, uncover the Volkswagen Dieselgate scandal. But that's kind of a that's a good example of the work that we do. We're not activists. We're scientists and engineers that uh, that crunch numbers and try to help set good policy. Fantastic. Well, you've of late been publishing a lot of reports on aviation industry and how they can get to net zero. In fact, your latest report says that. Aviation will need to take some very strong steps and measures to meet their net zero targets. Tell us a little about that. What should these measures be? Yeah, so we did just release a big report. Uh, It's on our website. It's called Vision 2050, Aligning Aviation with the Paris Agreement. Uh, And it's, um, I mean, it's, it's our contribution to the various net zero roadmaps that have been put out by governments and industry. Um, the good news is that it, it, these all align pretty well. Like uh, we are finding in our work that um, new new technologies are, are being developed that could nearly zero out aviation emissions in 2050, uh, and put the industry on on a trajectory for uh, 1.75 uh, degree temperature change. So that's sort of mid range of what we're aiming for in the Paris Agreement. So. So that's the good news. Um, I think where we add value here is we, we we dig pretty deep, not only on what technologies are needed, but also kind of the government policies uh, that will be required to drive the change. Uh, and then also, crucially, when they need to take effect. Um, and so, I mean, we're concluding that, you know, this, this technology transformation is possible, um, but governments need to peak emissions as soon as 2025, which is, you know, basically recover from COVID and then immediately start to uh, drop greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and furthermore, that we, we should expect pretty substantial increases in fuel prices in order to drive the type of new fuels and new planes that we need. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, those are kind of the headline findings. Are you suggesting a carbon tax be applied to jet fuel? It's one of the possibilities. Um, to dig into this a little bit deeper, you know, we, we can see a future probably past 2035 where we've scaled up sustainable aviation fuels and potentially scaled up hydrogen uh, such that a carbon tax of about 250 to $300 per ton of carbon could um, allow those fuels to be break even. The trick is the transition 
from now to then? Uh, because the cost of these new fuels are, are I mean, everyone quotes, right? Um, sustainable aviation fuels are two to five times as expensive as jet fuel. Um, uh, a, a jet fuel price, sorry, like a, a tax itself is not enough to bridge the gap. But what you can do is you can tax the fossil jet fuel and you can use that revenue to subsidize these new uh, demonstration projects and development projects and help bring the fuels down the cost curve. So definitely carbon pricing is part of the answer, but in the short term, we need to think of it more about as a, a way to generate revenue to support new technologies and less about being the key driver to plug the price gap. That's that's fair enough. And I, I appreciate you explaining how a carbon tax will potentially bring down the prices of SAF and other fuels, because the last thing we want is airlines uh, shying away from trying out SAF and others because it's very expensive and yet being hit by a jet fuel tax, for example. That's double mammy. Nobody wants that. Um, you, of course, have been on record saying, you know, SAF is tough. It's hard to do because of the price premium as well as the supply issues, including food stock going towards SAF. And one of my past interviewees, the CEO of GWO, completely dismissed it, even got angry at the suggestion that food stocks may be depleted because of SAF. And a lot of people have insisted that, you know what, the, the price premium, the green premium for SAF is coming down very rapidly. Is that the case? Yeah, um, this is an interesting one. I mean, I don't want to pick on any particular uh, fuel provider, um, but there is a history here, right? So let's let's set aside aviation for a second. Let's look at road transport. Like the United States has had this policy called the Renewable Fuel Standard for decades, uh, and it's been it requires basically increasing volumes of corn ethanol and soy uh, biodiesel to be blended into road transport uh, supplies. Um, the, I, the theory of that is you would use sort of crop-based biofuels as a way to prime the pump. And eventually, once you've kind of built out the, and matured the technology, we would, we would transform from those fuels to like advanced uh, waste-based fuels that have better environmental performance. The reality is it never worked. Um, we never got past corn ethanol and soy biodiesel to those advanced fuels. In fact, what happened is, um, you know, Elon Musk invented the electric car. Uh, and that is the technology that is now potentially going to replace corn ethanol and soy biodiesel. Um, it, it never worked, this kind of stepping stone from crops to advanced fuels. Now the idea is, okay, well, in essence, farmers may be losing markets, to electric cars, so let's put those those products in planes, uh, which again, it, we're gonna be trying to run the same experiment that we know failed once already. Um, and unless you think that corn ethanol and soy biodiesel led to the development of electric cars, we have to conclude that the experiment didn't work in road transport. Um, specifically thinking about uh, Jivo and, and their technology, um, there's two steps here, right? There's one is to generate the ethanol or the isobutanol, and two is to um, to convert that into uh, jet fuel for a plane. And those are different steps. And the merits of the fuel, as in uh, like in, in greenhouse gas terms, will be very different. Um, what concerns me a little bit about um, Jivo is that you you hear them talk about using uh, inedible corn 
which is a very, very strange phrase. Like all corn is edible. It's either edible by humans or it's edible by animals, which, which then we eat. So when you hear inedible corn, you should realize that most of that either ends up as ethanol today or it ends up in your meat or in your soft drink. Uh, and that's where the food to fuel competition uh, comes from. That's very interesting. Um, you know, there, there have been arguments that there's competition with these food, food stocks, especially in the EU. Is that a real concern that we might run out? I mean, in the shortage of food because of war and other crises, this should not be directed towards us here? Yeah, I mean, we're starting to get a little bit out of my ex area of expertise here, but the big um, the big complication in Europe is they, they do import a lot of palm oil and palm residues that goes into their food supply and also cosmetics and other things. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, the concern I think narrowly in Europe is if you divert any even excess oils from existing uses to jet fuel, then what replaces it is palm oil. And that's coming from Southeast Asia and often these tropical deforestation plantations. So that's the narrow concern. In the US, I don't believe we import too much palm oil. So it's really about corn and soil when you talk about crops. Right. I think that that does make sense. Now, you mentioned uh, Elon Musk inventing the electric car and how that was a technology step change. One technology step change that's happening in aviation is actually supersonic. Boom. Uh, Boom Supersonic is saying they're going to have the supersonic jet. United has ordered them or uh, placed um, a potential order for that. JAL is very interested. They've said uh, they are going into production with their overture plane. And they say they, that they will fly 100% on SAF. You have, of course, publicly stated uh, that this is not feasible. This will not work. Why are you so strongly against Boom? Uh, it's, a great, it's a great question. Um, I'm sort of a... Uh, a reluctant warrior in this space. And, and let me explain to you why. Um, we've done three papers now uh, on supersonics. And the last one was a joint paper with uh, MIT and their laboratory for aviation and the environment. And, and the conclusions are very pessimistic. I mean, both on the emission side, but especially on the market side, like given the, the high cost premium of supersonics, and in particular, the fact that this this next generation plane will not be able to operate over land. Um, we conclude that the market is, is, is going to be quite small. Um, but here's why I need to work on this nonetheless. Um, first, to a remarkable degree, uh, over the past, um, well, during the Trump administration, the major US priority on aviation and environment was promoting supersonics. We saw it in uh, congressional legislation. We saw it in NASA funding for like the X-plane, the low boom X-plane. Uh, and then um, there was a huge amount of work at the UN level in the International Civil Aviation Organization to kind of um, promote supersonic aircraft instead of, instead of setting tighter standards for the planes we still have today. Um, now, part of my job, I act as a technical observer to ICAO and so I'm in kind of the expert working groups that deliberate on standards. And there was a, a clear and really unfortunate attempt uh, to have um, promotion of supersonics through standards at ICAO to um, preclude regulation of other types of aircraft. Um, and um, luckily, we're, we're beyond that. We actually pushed through that. And ICAO is now prioritizing 
new greenhouse gas and noise standards for subsonic aircraft. So uh, mission accomplished. Um, the second reason that I need to work on this is, is really about the issue of goals versus actions. So, you know, industry is making all of the right um, noises about 2050 goals and the need to hit, you know, net zero emissions. Uh, and in, in fact, United and, and, you know, their CEO, Scott Kirby, has been saying great things about, you know, uh, zero greenhouse gas emissions in 2050, no offsetting. Um, if you look at the details of the, the, the sustainable aviation fuels they're investing in, they're, they're good fuels, right? Um, low potential life cycle emissions. Um, but but this, um, this commitment to supersonic aircraft, and it is a little bit fuzzy, you know, are these real orders or are these possible orders? That has the potential to swamp everything else that United is doing on environment. Like it, in it, the last time I checked, United purchased about 1 million gallons of SAF. This is a 2019 figure. Uh, by our estimate with MIT, a single, I'll call it overture-like plane, like a supersonic Mach number 1.7, about 75 seats, um, that would burn about um, 25 million gallons of fuel in a year. So just one of these planes would consume, if run on 100% SAF, 25 times the amount of SAF that United currently purchases. So I, I just think it's really important that if a, if a company makes um, long-term commitments to climate, they shouldn't be able to make take short-term concrete measures that go in the exact direction without someone critiquing them on it. So that's very interesting. And I appreciate you bringing this perspective. Um, when I spoke with Scott Kirby on this podcast, he was very emphatic saying it will be 100% SAF that we will fly. Uh, and I did ask him this similar question, you know, it's going to take a lot of fuel. And to which his point was, it's way out in the future when SAF supply is going to increase dramatically. And he did reiterate uh, this point, which is that United has committed to twice as much SAF as the rest of the world airlines combined till date. So I see commitment from airlines like United. Yes, it may consume 25 million gallons, but today they have committed to a million gallons. In 10 years from now, when the airplane is operating, I'm guessing and assuming, uh, given the, the, the logarithmic growth of uh, SAF, exponential growth, that they will have more SAF by then as well. Is that not right? I've heard this case in essence that um, certain groups, including United, including Boom, think that supersonics will create, they're like, they're a way to create a new specific market for sustainable aviation fuels. So um, let's, let's talk about that. The, the most recent study that we did um, with MIT, it's on our website, it was out in January of this year. We looked at the economics of supersonics and we looked at them um, both in the case uh, of with and without overland flight restrictions, uh, with and without SAFs. Uh, and the conclusion is that the economics just don't work with SAFs. So let's, let's lay out the numbers. Um, we'd expect that a, an overture-like um, aircraft would burn about seven times more fuel per seat kilometer than a subsonic aircraft in 2035. Um, a really good SAF in 2030 um, we estimate would have a price premium of somewhere between 2.7 and 3.3 times jet A. So you multiply those together, seven times more fuel per seat kilometer times, we'll say 
three times the fuel costs, you end up with uh, more than a 20 times uh, uh, increase in fuel costs. And if you compare that against the implicit economic value of a supersonic aircraft, which is, in essence, how many hours can it save per $100 of fare costs, they just don't line up. So fundamentally, we don't see the fuel bill and the potential demand for, uh, for supersonic aircraft lining up. What could happen, however, is an air, airline commits to buying a plane, they receive delivery of the plane, and suddenly they realize that the economics will only allow them to operate it on fossil jet fuel. And that is, uh, that is an example where you have an unintended consequence, you have, a, you have an airline with the best of intentions, and you end up driving emissions higher as a result. Wow, that was a, a very good lesson lesson in supersonic economics uh, right there. So I think there are lots of factors to consider. I do personally believe there is a niche market, you're right, for supersonic. It's a small category of people who will travel that. Uh, I also do believe that technology efforts like supersonic are needed to push the entire industry forward. You know, whatever, whether or not this in itself succeeds as a business model is yet to be seen, but it should hopefully uh, spur the growth of the entire industry, just like NASA's uh, rockets did uh, help aviation. Um, now, this was a niche case. Not everyone will fly um, boom or supersonic, but let's let's expand uh, to a much larger, broader sense. You've uh, you've said previously that flying business class and turning left is like driving an SUV, and turning right and flying economy is like driving a hybrid car. There is a lot of debate from government and regulators who sometimes want to suppress demand or curb aviation growth. Uh, is this feasible? Do we do we need to fly less? Um, is there a case for even a frequent flyer tax uh, that puts a surcharge on business class seats? Yeah, yeah. So I think the idea of uh, frequent flyer tax or a frequent flyer levy is really interesting. Um, let's set aside just for a second the the question of how you would actually do it, because there are some some key complications here about, um, you know, if it's done at a country level in the UK, what if people flying from the UK just start booking their flights, um, you know, using an international website and avoid paying the, the, the tax? It, I mean, there are some key questions there. Uh, the reason I like the idea of a frequent flyer levy in principle uh, is just that it, it would... Um, it would it could distribute the costs of decarbonizing flight uh, in what I would consider a progressive way. So I'll just give you some statistics here. Um, in pretty much every country we've looked at and other researchers have looked at, you know, a pretty small share of the population takes most of the flights. Um, typically, it's like 15% of citizens of say the UK or Germany or the US. Uh, take about 70% of the flights. Um, and uh, those are the frequent flyers. I, there's no clear definition of it. I've tried to define it for the US. It says someone who flies six or more times per year. Um, and that cohort is one out of eight Americans, and they take um, about 65% of the flights. Um, that is the most educated, wealthiest demographic we have. Uh, and so I, I firmly believe that policies that, um, you know, you know, target that group or tap that group to generate revenue for new technologies are really important. This is different from the idea of 
let's tax people so they don't fly. This is the idea of we know that we need upwards of $4 trillion to fund the transition to net zero. Who's going to pay for that? Uh, and I think uh, something like a frequent flyer levy that um, distributes most of the cost on fr us frequent flyers, and we can come back to us because I have some stories on that. Um, rather than people who fly once a year or twice a year just to visit family, I think that makes a lot of sense. Let's talk about us then. How often do you fly? How often do you take, your, take, take flights and how often do you fly business class, Dan? Yeah, I'm a complete work in progress. Uh, I, I don't fly business class, actually. Um, I mean, I, by our estimate, um, you know, the carbon intensity of business class is somewhere between 2.8 and 4.3 times that of economy. So it makes a big difference. You're, you're claiming more space on the plane, and therefore you get a larger share of the, the emissions bill. So I don't fly business class. Um, Pre-COVID, I flew a lot. So I, a lot of my work is for the UN, either um, planes, well, I go to Montreal for ICAO meetings, or for maritime shipping, which is my other hat. I would go to London for IMO meetings. So I would fly uh, six to eight times per year internationally, and flying was about 75% of my own carbon footprint. Um, so it was a big part of it. Now, I can make the argument that these are good flights, right? These are flights that are reducing emissions. Um, but um, post-COVID, I, I, I've stopped flying like completely. I've flown twice since COVID, both for personal reasons to, to move family. Um, but um, work trips have not started yet. The, the UN meetings that I, I tend to cover are still virtual. Uh, and we haven't, we haven't come to a, to a new normal yet on what that will look like. So, um, yeah, I mean, my, this here, my living room, my, uh, my desk has become my workspace. <laughs> that is uh, very interesting. I remember uh, Dirk Singer, who's our research director at Simplifying, got me to do my own carbon footprint analysis in 2020. That was February 2020. So I did it for the entire year of 2019. And my okay. carbon footprint was uh, that of two Qataris. So 2x, I think it was 82 tons or something like that. It was crazy. Some uh, crazy amount. I was like, what and, is happening? And Qatar and, is a big number too. Are you, are you from Qatar? Or is that right? Okay. No, not. No, no. no okay. I, I, it was the highest in the world. Qatar was the highest in the world. If I'm oh, not got it, got it. Okay. At 41, 41 or 42 tons per uh, capita. So I was twice the highest country in the world. Okay. Uh, if, uh, and, and 90 to 95% of that came from my flying. Most of it, pre-pandemic, was indeed business class most of which was a lot of international day trips. And I'm shocked and surprised to say this, but I haven't flown this year yet. It's June already. It's zero flights this year. Okay. Um, and last year I took two trips and that is significantly down. Work still goes on via Zoom. I'm not saying meeting is not important. I think travel connects the world and makes the world a way better and smaller place. But I think a lot of us frequent flyers, previous business class travelers, have seen a new light in doing things in a different manner, which doesn't necessarily hurt the business without having these meetings. So I think that there is light at the end of the tunnel here, which might be a golden middle. Yeah, I'm, it's, it's definitely a pay point for the airlines, right? Because business travel, you know the statistics better than me. It's, uh, what, half of their revenue and 70% of profits typically? More than half, yeah. 
yeah, so many percent of profits. Yeah, uh, but for the environment, yeah, I mean, uh, fewer flights um, definitely, especially when we're still stuck to fossil fuels, is is a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are short term solutions and long term solutions. There is SAF, which is short to medium term. There are long term solutions like electric plane and hydrogen plane. What do you see is the most promising? Do we have a silver bullet here that can take aviation? And you know, do we have a Tesla in aviation? We don't have a Tesla in aviation. Um, I I think we do have a good menu of options that are being developed, and they they will roll out in sort of the short, medium, and and long terms. Um, I mean, the 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 report we just released yesterday. It, I mean, it's it's broadly consistent with what you've seen from industry and from government. So sustainable aviation fuels is is um, the largest chunk of mitigation if airlines do meet net zero by mid-century. And we do, we do have to say if, because it's possible that they won't. It's possible that um, you know fossil jet fuel will remain too cheap and SAFs will not scale. That's a possible future. But um, you know, if net zero is the target, then um, you know, SAFs would be about 60% of the overall mitigation, the emissions reductions. Uh, fuel efficiency from new aircraft and then from improving operational efficiency would be about a third of the mitigation. And then we've got small chunks for hydrogen potentially and um, some demand reduction, just because if you end up having fuel prices increase by 70% in 2050, you get a price signal there. Tickets get somewhat more expensive and a few people uh, fly less. Um, we were a bit surprised that the, the pure demand response to price looks to be pretty manageable. Like uh, we're, we're modeling a reduction of 7% of, um, of RP, RPKs in 2050, but that's 7% less of a big growth trend. So instead of RPKs increasing 150% from 2019 to 2050, they're increasing 130%. So we see a little bit of a demand response, but airlines are still going to grow. They're still going to be a much bigger business in 2050 than they are today. Um, hydrogen, if it works, we think um, can start to to, to bite into um, emissions around 2045, 2050. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, because of their compatibility and their flexibility, you know, and the fact that you could use them in existing planes, um, if the price gap and the supply challenges can be addressed, we do see SAFs as being the largest share of mitigation. Okay, um, that is uh, that is a very good overview. Uh, I have to admit. Now let's look at it from the airline CEO perspective. What would your advice be to a typical airline CEO who's looking to get sustainability right, but it's a wild west out there? He doesn't know where to get started, or if he's getting started, he's getting climate activists saying you're greenwashing. Stop doing it. And he's getting his knuckles grabbed. So he's waiting for someone like an Ayara to put a directive out so he can just follow it. What should they do? Should they take proactive steps and potentially put themselves out for criticism, but maybe make a breakthrough as well? Or should they just wait and watch and do the bare minimum needed for the entire industry to move forward? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, I've never I've never worked at an airline at all. So um, advising a CEO gets a little bit challenging for me. Um, I mean, I'll say, I'll say a couple of things. Um, one is that this, this is largely a collective action problem. Like, even if you say 
SAFs are the, the future, it, it's clear that voluntary goals from airlines are not going to get us there. It's just the, the price gap is too large. So, um, you know, airlines will need to advise governments on setting good policy. Um, the good is, is after, I would say, I mean, I've been working on this for 15 years and for the first time ever, I would say we are starting to see pretty solid policy being set by a government and that it's it's in the European Union. So the European Union uh, is is uh, is proposing a lot of good measures under what we call the fit for 55 package. So uh, a good SAF mandate, um, emissions trading for aviation. Some will disagree with their, it, but there is a proposal for a, a kerosene tax in order to start to bridge the price gap. Um, so, uh, you know, watch what Europe is doing. And we think that they're broadly doing um, good things. There are some really interesting um, sort of voluntary efforts or private efforts that are ongoing. And um, I'll just highlight a couple that we're working on. Um, there's a, a, a group called the Science-Based Targets Initiative. Uh, it's called SBTI. Uh, and that's being run by uh, several groups, uh, World Wildlife Fund, uh, World Resources Institute, and two other groups. And they are helping not just not just airlines, but a variety of industries set um, midterm climate targets. And so there's now a pathway in which airlines can sign up to a sort of a certified well below two degree uh, temperature target uh, and uh, emissions target. And also we're working on a 1.5 degree target. And ICCT is is at, is leading the technical work on that. So we started to see a number of airlines. I know American in particular um, has um, has been approved for an SBTI target. That's one. Um, the other thing, uh, which I think is really interesting, is that um, some travel search engines are starting to put out emissions estimates by itinerary for flyers. Um, Google Flights yeah. is doing kayak. Um, uh, Skyscanner and uh, light flights are the four examples. I think this is a really important effort to mobilize consumers um, and give them a mechanism for rewarding the, the lowest emitting flights with their dollars. So I think that's really important. I, I, I would like to see more airlines to support that and make sure that um, those travel search engines are giving good transparent estimates to the consumer, um, because I think it's part of the, the solution set. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of Seed Guru back in the days where Seed Guru would give me how comfortable the seat is. And now all airlines on their own sites have seat comfort and seat maps, just like Seed Guru did you know, 10, 15 years ago. Can't wait for the day where I can see the carbon emission of my particular seat. And with just one click, just like checking the bag, you know, offset it or buy SAF for my seat for that flight rather than 20 years later. In, uh, in a small yeah. forest in Madagascar, for example. It's ironic because I used the seat guru example in this pitch because like, to me, <laughs> as someone who, who works on aviation and, and is really concerned about the climate crisis, the fact that you get so much information on the comfort of your seat and zero information on its environmental impact has always created for me. So I, uh, I think I it's a great example. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the world is changing, preferences are changing, and I think airlines need to change as well. Final question, what gives you the most hope for the future of sustainable aviation? Uh, for sustainable aviation? Um, or rather for a sustainable future for aviation? No, I'll say two things. Um, I think there's a lot interesting going on on the technology side. 
Um, and to rewind, I, I, I just alluded to that, that I've been working on aviation emissions for you know, 15 years. Um, it was a pretty lonely, lonely world for about 10 of those. I mean, we had voluntary targets. Um, we had some minor international standard setting, but uh, it, it wasn't until 2019, I would say, that this really started to pick up. And now we're seeing startups working on, um, you know, electrification, hydrogen aircraft, um, e-kerosene. I mean, a lot of new technologies that we didn't even, it was, wasn't even on our radar screen uh, five years ago. So that, that gives me hope. The other thing is the trigger to all that action. Um, and we can, we can, we might want to, we might disagree on whether this is the right final solution, but the, the flying shame movement and the, the sudden interest in alternatives to fossil jet fuel and aviation that arose in 2019 was a huge trigger. Um, and personally, I think, I think personally a message of, um, and, and I can't go this, this far because, because of my work, but you know, a, a message of, um, my next flight will be on hydrogen, for example, or my next flight will be on sustainable aviation fuel, uh, is a really powerful and useful message. And in fact, I think, uh, uh in, in many ways, a more actionable message from activists than I will never fly again, right? Because if you say I will never fly again, you're dead to the airlines. But if you say I will fly again as soon as you develop alternatives to fossil jet fuel, then you've given them a very clear message and something to work on. So um, I just wanted to highlight that Greta Thunberg and the flying shame movement has been hugely important in all this. Um, and those two things, the, the, the technologies that are on board and then fundamentally, the new activism we're seeing around aviation and climate. Um, I think that's a great combination and does give me hope. That is fantastic. And thank you for clarifying that as well, because you want to resonate, even if you're an activist, you want to resonate with the people making a decision. You're absolutely right. If you're never flying again, then why, why should airlines care about you or about your message? Um, well, I, I definitely see reasons for hope. When I spoke with Scott Kirby, he mentioned that every single United flight uh, taking out, uh, taking off from, I believe, San Francisco uh, has SAF on board today already. Uh, when I spoke with Etihad CEO Tony Douglas, he talked about the Green Liner program that is that pioneered a lot of uh, sustainable technologies. Uh, the new A350 that they uh, recently flew uh, with significantly less um, fuel consumption and fuel burn than their previous flights as well. So. I clearly see airlines putting this out there. I think more airlines need to do it, like you said, and more consistently as well, because I'm definitely interested as a customer, as a passenger, as a customer, you know, what what is the airline doing on my next flight? Not in 2050, not in 2035, on my next flight. Uh, and if nothing's being done, um, what can I do about it? There are companies like Carbon Click, which offer um, individuals like us a subscription service where we can subscribe to uh, the you know to offset our carbon footprint um, on a day-to-day -day basis as well. But Dan, really appreciate the counter perspective, the counter narrative to what aviation needs to do to become more sustainable. And again, I'm left with more hope than not after our conversation. Yeah, great. Well, it's been really nice to talk to you. And uh, yeah, I think uh, 
uh, I'm 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 getting more helpful. I think we've 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 pushed past. I think the how to put it the the period where it was mostly about voluntary goals and the goals themselves were the deliverable to something where people are really trying to develop technology and policymakers are weighing in. So yeah, it'll be a really interesting another 15 years to work on this. <laughs> That's fantastic, Dan. Thank you for um, the very interesting work you do and we will keep looking out for your reports. Thanks again. Great, thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sustainability in the Air, the world's first podcast dedicated to sustainable aviation. We hope you liked it and will share it with your network. Please also leave us a review. Awareness is the key to a green future. Your support will help our insights on sustainable aviation reach a wider audience. In addition, for every single listen of this podcast, we will plant a tree. And for every single review, we will plant 50 trees. You can also write to us at podcast at simplifying.com. And for more content on sustainable aviation, please visit our website, simplifying.com, and join the movement.